Well, if you have your Bibles, you can take them and go to Romans chapter 8. Um, we're going to spend the next uh, few weeks here looking at this particular chapter. And I want to invite you, maybe throughout this week, to you know, kind of carve out maybe 10, 15 minutes, once a week, the next five, and just say, God, I want to lean into this scripture because there's something here. So if you've got your smartphones, you can follow along in version. We put notes on there for you and all that. Uh, this week, or actually two weeks ago, my daughter turned seven years old, my youngest. That made me feel old for a minute, and then, then I realized this was just an incredible opportunity. And on her birthday, you know what we did? We had this, this button, right? And it says, birthday girl. I did not wear it because I'm not a girl. And so uh, we had this birthday girl button that she wore the entire day, and everywhere she went, people noticed the button. And they said, hey, happy birthday. And she just lit up, and it was an awesome day. And maybe you've seen that at different amusement parks. There's sometimes you go to Disneyland, there's people that are like they're celebrating their birthday or their anniversary, and they've got that special button that they wear. And the truth is, we all have buttons, so to speak, and, and things that, that we know. Because here's what we know: we live in a in a world of words, don't? And words can be a positive thing, but words can also be a, a struggle and and, and, a, and a challenge at times too. That words have weight to them, don't they? In a positive way, and also, let's be honest, uh, some of us have carried the weight of some words around for a while. And, and maybe it's not a button that anyone sees, but the truth is, it's there. You see it. Maybe a few people around you have pointed it out or have noticed it. And there's this great challenge, and, and we use words a lot. If you've ever read personal ads, People say incredible things about themselves, right? Extremely athletic. Incredibly good looking. No one ever says frumpy. You know, no one ever says incredibly lazy. Still living with my mom. No one ever says that. Okay, they, they have these positive adjectives about themselves. That's why we write resumes. And we, sell, and we say in this resumes, incredibly hard worker. No one ever says, it's amazing how much time I can waste. <laughs> no one ever says, I'm so forgetful. They say, I'm dependable, right? And yet, all of you raised your hand last week and said, I'm forgetful. But no one ever puts that in a resume. They, they start using these adjectives, these positive adjectives, to describe themselves and to paint a picture. And what I want us to begin to see over these next five weeks, see, remember last week we in Easter, and I'm really glad you're here, and if you're, that was your first time, welcome back. It's such an honor to have you here, and I hope that we can help you take some steps, because much like we celebrate the, the two that, that took a first step into a relationship with Jesus last week, we want to be a place that's helping people take continual next steps in a relationship with Jesus, because this isn't about a religion thing. This is about a relationship where I actually get to know God, and God's helping pull me into who I was created to be more and more, and so this this notion of words has a huge impact. And so as a found one, that's what we looked at last week, that, that Jesus finds people, and he, and he knows people by name. And that when Jesus calls your name, that you get to live with a new identity as a found one, a, a child of the King, who the creator of the heavens and the earth knows you and has called you and, been, and now is in a relationship with you pulling you to be more and more who you were created and called to be. And so as a found one, there's a new identity 
that you get to live from, the new foundation that you get to, to build your life upon. And it's around these words. And in Romans chapter 8, there's five words that I want us to kind of see over these next five weeks. Because I, I think if you allow these words to get a hold of you, listen, they are life-giving. They just are. Because here's what I know and what you are about words. That words have a way of affecting those negative ones. They just have a way of kind of wiggling into your life and begin to become very draining, don't they? In fact, if it was just you and me in the room and we could be honest about it and, and we could say, here's some words that people have spoken over you or some words coming out of some decisions that you've made in your past or words that were done to you that you didn't have a choice, it was just done to you, and all of a sudden you're living with the, the, the button or the badge of that word. And, and pretty soon it's beginning to morph its way into your whole identity and how you see life and how you begin to react or interact with people around you. And, and it's, it becomes very deflating. And it begins to steal life from you in some ways. And in Romans chapter 8, there's these words that the Apostle Paul begins speaking for everyone who's a follower of Jesus, everyone who, who kind of aims their life and says, I believe in what Jesus did, and there's something about his life that has claimed something for me, and so to the best of my know-how, I'm going to align my life with him, and these new words become spoken over you as a found one. And it begins to build this foundation that you can live from, and it becomes very life-giving. So I want us to see that the first word tonight is this idea of freed. You are freed. Now, that may seem like a notion of, okay, well, I, okay, that's great, preacher dude, and, and I know that, because I've been around church for a long time and, and stuff, and, and I want you to kind of see, maybe in a fresh way, uh, this idea of freedom is not the fact that God freed you once. It's the fact that God has an ongoing freedom pull in your life. That you and I were called to live in freedom, not just freedom from, okay, we got salvation, we we started a relationship with God. It's now I get to live out of this freedom. In fact, Paul says words like this. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. That's an amazing statement. Think about God for a second. God is holy. He is set apart. He, he is perfect. Anyone here willing to admit that they are not perfect? Okay, so if God is holy and perfect and he is completely righteous, and yet I know I'm not, for me to live in no condemnation is an amazing truth, isn't it? I don't know if you, how many of you have ever been in a courtroom before, and maybe, hopefully you weren't there on trial, but if you were, we love you anyway. Um, and, you know, maybe you were there, I got to serve on a jury duty up in Pinal County, which is like forever and a day away uh, from here, and I got to serve there for like three and a half days. And I was on this jury, I got picked. In fact, I sat in the back. Have anyone been on jury duty before? And you remember you go, and they have to watch that video, and you watch the video, and you're like, oh, I don't want to do it. And yeah, I love America, and I'm not anti-government. I just, I don't want to be here. Right? And, and I, I was there, I was in the back, I was trying to think of excuses, and, and then I realized I'm a pastor, I can't lie. I shouldn't lie. I probably can, but I shouldn't. And, and, and I was like, I can't make excuses. And they're like, can you get out of work? And I'm like, no, it's not flexible. Okay, yes, it is. And, and, um, and so they finally narrowed down, and I made the cut. And it's like the one team you don't want to make the cut. It's like every other kickball team, you're like, I don't want to make it. This one, you're like, I don't want to be picked. And you try to hide, 
and I'm short anyway, so I was trying to hide behind big people, and it didn't work, and I made the cut, and I'm in the box, so Jack's in the box now. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I'm in the jury box, right? And so I'm there, and do you know how hard it is for an extrovert to sit quiet for three days? You can't talk to the people next to you. You can write notes if you don't get caught, but here's the weird thing. You have to turn in every piece of paper you doodle on. Do you know how challenging this was? And so I learned a lot about myself. I have major ADD issues. Um, and I'm sitting through this trial, and, and here's what you begin to see in the courtroom. You are surrounded by mahogany and leather and just the smells of justice. And you're there, and, and there's the judge, and he is large and in charge, and he is like elevated above everybody, and he is in charge, and you know it. And then there's the plaintiff that has their table, and they're like, they're, they're like really put together. And then you have the defendants that are like put together but not put together, at least the trial I was in. And, and, and they're kind of this struggle that was going on, and we have to listen to conversations, and this was a, and I can't really get into it, but there was actually one famous person that came and sat in the, in the witness chair, which was kind of cool, even though I hated their football team. Um, but it was kind of fun to just say, hey, wow, I was in the, okay. But this whole trial goes on, and this, this just day after day and hour after hour listening to these cases, and here's what you begin to see, is that when the guilt starts getting piled on, and evidence starts getting piled on, and what it seems at first is, oh, that defendant really has a case here. And then you hear the plaintiff's side, and you're like, oh, man, they really got a case here. And then you're sitting there, and you can't talk to anybody, so you're like, in your mind, you have this internal struggle, like, they're right, they're wrong, nope, I'm sorry, they're wrong, they're right, nope, 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 nope. And you're going back and forth, and you're listening to the only, you've been through this ordeal. Or maybe you've watched enough lawyer shows on TV. Uh, it happens way slower than TV. <laughs> way slower. Way more boring. Um, and so you go through this whole process, and what you begin to see is that as the evidence begins to, to pile up, you just begin to see the squirming. And you don't know quite how it's going to go yet, but the evidence becomes really visible to see. And there's a weight to it. And here's what you got to understand from the book of Romans. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. There's multiple little house churches type thing that would have been there and they would have received this letter. And, and Paul is writing this letter in Romans. It's one of the, the best works that he did that the Holy Spirit directed him to write. The book of Romans is an amazing kind of uh, just paper, scripture, uh, the whole idea of here's what the gospel really is. And for seven chapters, Paul has been kind of piling up the evidence that you and I are broken, that you and I have wayward tendencies, that you and I have a, a, a predisposition inside of us called sin, or the sin nature, the flesh nature, that says, I crave to do things that God said I probably shouldn't do. And it's not necessarily this idea of rules. And here's what we begin to see, is that this idea of sin, uh, we've made rules. That I'm going to break a rule. The truth is, sin is actually much deeper than that. Sin is really a relational violation. It's somewhere that I was made and created to be in relationship with God, or in relationship with people around me, and when I violate that, I actually violate a relationship. It's not just breaking a rule. It's not that I drove 60 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour space or a school zone. I didn't, I had, there's consequences that go beyond that. There, there's this relational violation that happens. And for seven chapters, Paul has been building this case against you and against me. 
And if you just read the first seven chapters of Romans, you begin to feel maybe like what that defendant is feeling in the courtroom. Like starting to sink a little bit lower in your chair, starting to squirm just a little bit more, realizing, hey, wow, this case is not going my way. And all of a sudden, you begin to maybe sense this badge that's going to go on you, and it's a word. It's called condemned. Because at any moment, that judge is going to raise his gavel and slam it down and make a verdict. And you know you've got to live with that. You know whatever that verdict is, because he's in charge, something is going to transpire there that's going to affect you for weeks and months and years ahead. It's going to carry something with you that's going to be great challenge. And the weight of that law can be overbearing at times. It becomes this great challenge. See, the law is perfect standard. Here's the perfect behavior. Here's the perfect way that we're supposed to live. And yet, we all know when we stand next to that, that we fall short of that. I mean, there isn't anyone in here to be like, yeah, you all raised your hand. You said, no, no, there's something different here. There's a challenge here. There's defining this sin as I've broken rules, but I've also violated relationships, either by my own choice and my own decision, or by precursors, just in a way that it's happened, I've allowed it to happen. And so Paul has been building this case against you and against me for seven chapters. Now, think about Paul. He really did a great job a few weeks ago. Remember, we talked about Saul, who became Paul. And his, uh, whole, um, his whole change of life and how God got a hold of him, this is a guy that persecuted the church, that killed Christ followers. And now, if anyone that should be guilty, don't you think it would be Paul? So he's building his own case even against himself. He's underneath the weight of this law. And he's, he's kind of saying, look, there's no one that escapes this. Not even me, and I'm writing it. And I'm being directed by the Holy Spirit and led along to, to write this, record this, so that future generations would read it and see that no one stands next to a perfect God and is blameless. Everybody falls short. And what you begin to see is that the law is this idea of religion. See, Paul for years had said, I, I'm going to obey the law. And to the best of his ability, he tried to obey that law that God passed on through Moses and down through the Old Testament that we begin to read. And that here's the truth, is you can try to live all that, you can amp yourself up and try to live with all the energy to try to be good enough. And here's what you'll come to. In the seven chapters he's building this case, you'll eventually get to the point where you realize you're not. Some people get there quick, and some people take a long time. Some people run on a religious treadmill for a long time to finally realize that they can't run fast enough. And the law, sometimes when you try to obey it enough, it can get you to a weird place of feeling like you have superiority. Well, I'm, I'm better than so-and-so. I don't break the law as much as he does, or as much as she does. And anyone ever, uh, anyone ever ridden first class in an airplane? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. Uh, I have not. And so when I get onto a plane and I walk through first class, I've got issues, okay? Because I believe the people that are sitting there have issues. They think they're better than me. And, and I'm just being honest. If you're in first class and I walk by you, I will smile. But on the inside, I, I, I think you've got struggles. And I think you think you're better than me just because a curtain separates us. And I get really upset with that. And I struggle with that. 
In fact, I love going to baseball games. We had a great time last night. Uh, for those of you who went, we'll do that again sometime. But we, my son and I got to go to a baseball game out at uh, Keno Stadium a few years ago, and we got skybox seats, which I normally don't have like traditional skybox, but it was cool. We got to go up where they have the buffet, free food, and we walked through a door into our little room, and we had a balcony where we sat and looked at all the little people. And, and, and we said, you know, we used to be one of them. <laughs> we would sit down the first baseline and the third baseline, and we'd have to go get our food, but not anymore. We just sit here and we say, and they bring me a hot dog because I'm at a buffet, and they serve me here. And, and it's really simple for that, real quick, how quick it was for me, just being honest, to go from, okay, bleacher seat guy to skybox seat guy, and all of a sudden I get, begin to own the superiority that I'm better than the little people down here. And it, it seems silly to talk about, but the truth is churches can breed that too, right? And in religious systems that can happen, doesn't it? That so very often we, even as followers of Jesus, can begin looking at this relationship with God through the lens of rules and a religious bent and a religious tint to it. And we begin to say, well, I, I'm keeping the rules more than so-and-so here. And you may even be sitting next to so-and-so right now. Don't punch them. They will punch you back. But the truth is, you, you might even begin to evaluate yourself that way. And what Paul is saying is, you, you can't get to the place where you become stuck by that. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 7, we're going to pick up to this. Romans chapter 7. I want you to see something. This verse 21, not only does Paul paint this picture that this superiority thing, that when you feel like you can keep the law, uh, you realize that you're not better than anyone else, that the, the, the ground of the cross is level, and everyone needs to be there, uh, because we're all broken, and we all fall short. And then Paul begins to paint this picture of this tension. This exists within himself, this idea of, I want to do the right thing, and yet I struggle, and I don't do the right thing. Anyone Can anyone identify with Sir Paul here? That, you know, there's things in my mind that I want to obey God. I want to follow Him. I want to align my life with Him. Yet there's these pulls and these tensions and this battle that kind of goes on where I end up choosing the wrong thing, and I choose to walk away and choose uh, different things that, that don't align with God's heart and what he, the best He has for me. And he begins to talk about this. In verse 21, he says things like this, So I find this law at work within me. When I want to do good, evil is right there within me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. Meaning, I delight in the ways God established the right way and the best possible way to live life. I desire that. But again, I find this so that I see another law at work in my members and my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of this law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Paul comes to this place. I can't believe I am so broken. I can't fix it. And then he asks this incredible question. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who? Because I've tried, Paul would say. And for seven chapters, he's laying out this human pursuit in humanity to try to earn their way to God. To try to work be, and be good enough for a holy God. And it's just like you just fail on that. Or you become superior and begin to judge other people, or you begin to realize there's no way for you to keep it. So who's going to rescue me? And then I love this next phrase. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Friends, that's the gospel. Right there. If you're new to church, here's the whole point. Religious systems try to set out a track record for you to say, here's the 